you have your Bibles this morning, open them with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Most hymns that are written have a shelf life at best of a few decades. Some last for centuries like Amazing Grace or A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Right now we're in a culture shift, monumental cultural shift in worship music that has caused many songs the church used to sing, some good, some not so good, some horrible, to be cast onto the ash heap of history. Psalm songs, both then and now, are popular for a while, but they come to be seen as not being theologically sound or experientially sound, and eventually they pass off the scene. And yet, even those songs are sometimes used by God to help his people in difficult moments. Such can be um, said of the hymn in the garden, It still rests comfortably in that green hymnal in the pew back in front of you, though it is not used much anymore. It is number 187. We're not going to sing it, but you can pull it out and look at it if you want. Some people don't like this hymn, and so it's kind of falling out of uh, use over time. The reason some people don't like it is because they think it is sappy, uh, overly sentimental, and not reflective of a lot of Christian experience. On the other hand, we do find that this hymn helped a believer as far away as China during the mid-20th century. And such is the story of Pastor Chen Min Lin, who lived in China. In the late 1940s, when the communists came to power in China, Chairman Mao became the leader Eventually, he successfully murdered about 60 million of his own people. In China at that time, they demanded everyone call Chairman Mao Savior. And communism became enforced with the threat of life and limb. Pastor Chen, before he was a pastor, was a dedicated communist to the party to those beliefs, but he came to know Christ as his Savior, began to proclaim the gospel, pastor churches. In the 1960s, he was arrested, told to stop preaching. He continued to preach. In 1968, he went back to prison where he would be for, uh, for 18 years of his life. And while he was in that prison, it was horrible. He was underfed. And starved several times. He was so weak he would have to crawl around. His own son was killed by the communists during that time, and his wife died, but they didn't bother to tell him. And as he went on in that horrible situation, and the years slowly passed, he finally got a new assignment in the prison. And that is, the prison guard sent him to work in the prison camp's cesspool. That is, where the waste went from the prison. And so he went out there on the first morning to work in the cesspool. Fearful of catching disease, rightly so. 
out there in the midst of all the stench that would make you nauseated because of it. He said it was unbearable. He said, I thought I would die before the first day ever ended. And he went to that job again the next morning, and he began to notice something in the days that followed, and that is that he was all alone out there doing that work. Nobody else wanted to be out there with him, not even the guards. And it began to dawn upon him at that point that that he could really have time with the Lord there in a way that he could not have had in any other way. And it was at that point where the light broke through and illuminated his mind as he'd been given, he said, solitude. And so he started singing softly. It was the first time he'd been able to sing since he came into that prison. He began to praise the Lord. And with tears streaming down his his face, he began to sing an old hymn he had learned a long time ago in Shanghai. And the words went like this, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He tells me I am His own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And he said this, right there in that festering, rancid cesspool, I seem to smell the fragrant aroma of the rose of Sharon, that is Jesus. And there he said, in that awful darkness, I seem to see the dazzling splendor of the bright and morning star. And he found contentment in the cesspool of the refuse of a prison camp in which he served for 18 years, fearful that when he came out, his work would have diminished. But when he got out, he found of all things that the churches he had led had actually grown and multiplied. Well, over these past weeks, we have been exploring the topic of Christians and stress in a series entitled Stress Busters. And in this series, we've been seeking to present from Scripture some unique ways we as believers have for handling stress that far outpaces the world. Our approach to stress is different in substance always and often in practical strategies. You can find those messages online at our website, or you can download our app, and all the PowerPoints are there. So today, in this seventh message, though, I want to bring this series to a close as we look at one other passage of someone talking about being in the midst of stress, and hear what this person has to say and how it applies to us in this overall suggested approach I've been giving to you for handling our stress. So, in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4 we find the text that I want us to look at this morning. Beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This passage has one verse that is familiar to our ears because we hear it applied to everything from running marathons to dieting in our culture that uses the Bible wrongly in its quest for fulfillment. And that is the verse that we find in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What we see, however, in this verse is that this verse is one that is uttered by Paul in the midst of real struggle, true danger, and actual oppression. He is in prison for Christ. And he is writing this letter to encourage the church in the city of Philippi, a church that he had founded in the past, and it would be today in what you and I would think of as the nation of Greece. This church in the past had supported his mission efforts, which he talks about in the passage. But apparently there had been some type of an interruption in that. Now he is in prison, either in Rome, that's the traditional place, if you go back to chapter 1, The traditional understanding is that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from being in prison in Rome because he says in Philippians 1 verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that is being in prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace of the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So usually we think about the palace guard, the Praetorian Guard, as being in Rome. And so the traditional view is that Paul is writing this letter from being in prison in Rome. Others argue from internal things within the letter that perhaps he is writing it from Ephesus. Either way, regardless of where he is, he's in jail and his life is in danger. If you go down to verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He is in prison. He's been going without things in the prison. And so, again, now they have sent some support to him through someone named Epaphroditus. And so he's closing out the letter here by thanking them for the renewed concern. Again, the ability to give had been interrupted, but now they've been able to renew their support. And so if we go to chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern uh, for me. Now, Paul is genuinely thankful for what they have sent to him. And he has been gracious here in thanking them for their gift. But he is most concerned, he's moved beyond that part of life. He's most concerned here about how their giving has benefited them spiritually. I'm not speaking on giving today, but this is one of the clear places in the Word of God where it says that the Lord will supply our needs as we support his work, if that is our heart. 
and where we're going to be blessed in our walk with Him as, as we give. Paul is not like the false teachers who abounded in the ancient world who took advantage of their followers and fleeced them. He's not like them. You'll notice in chapter 4, verse 17, he says about his life, he says, not that I desire your gifts, but he's more concerned about their spiritual benefit. He says, I don't desire necessarily your gifts, but I desire is that to more be credited to your account. That is, that, that in your work for Christ, that, that you're blessed in that, and you are storing up those treasures and serving the Lord. He's not like the false teachers. He has not asked them for anything because, as he tells us, even in the midst of his troubles now, he, he's content. He doesn't even need it. He's thankful they have sent it. He's thrilled that they're getting the blessing out of it. But Paul says, down in verse 14, he says, it was good to you to share in my troubles, but he says, I have now found contentment. And so what he teaches us here about his own life is that we see that he has mastered in his life how to deal with stress to the point that he can write now in a prison, not knowing whether he's going to live or die, he can write to them to say, I have found contentment in my life. I'm thankful what you have sent to me, but I've learned to live in poverty. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to go through all those other things he talks about in the Corinthian letters and the suffering that he faced in his life. He's made it to the place in his life, listen, the place to where you and I need to make it. He has made it to the place in his Christian walk that you and I need to make it to in our lives. He's gotten there, and so he can teach us. So what can we learn from Paul in this last installment of this series to cap off a believer's unique way of processing stress? Well, again, I just have a two-part uh, message. So any of you that are taking preaching, you give me an F. I don't care. It's a two-part point sermon. And here's what I, I want to close out with. First of all, when we read this about Paul here in his life, saying, I've, I've come to the place of where I've learned contentment. We can learn ourselves that you and I can truly now begin to move toward contentment in our lives. I don't know what you're going through this morning what stresses you may be carrying. But I know what God is up to, and I know He has a plan in this for all of us, and you and I can begin to move down the trail to where Paul is toward contentment. Now, as we said from the very beginning of this series, stress in the eyes of the world is a bad thing. It's one big difference between how we look at stress and how an unbeliever looks at stress. In the world, the eyes of the world, stress is a bad thing. And so people try to handle it in various ways. Sometimes they try to mute it, tamp it down through drugs and alcohol. Or they do other things to try and short-circuit it. They practice disciplines of other world religions, that some of them that teach that pressure and struggle are just illusions. And they're not real if you can just bypass them through things like alternate nostril bleeding, uh, breathing that Hillary Clinton taught us about. Or they follow innocuous ways that are not bad, such as essential oil baths or massages. I hate massages. I've had one massage in my life. I don't like to be touched, especially <laughs> by somebody I don't know. 
I'm sorry. That is a that was a stressful moment for me. It was. We better move on. Some some come to the point in their life with their stress of just being like the ancient Stoics. They seek to bear up under life's problems with, as you and I might say it, with a stiff upper lip. And although they may not believe life has any ultimate meaning, they find pride in themselves in comparison to others and how they bear life better than other people do. Or like Paul, when he was given that thorn in the flesh he talks about in the Corinthian letter, and that pressure is upon us, Paul asks for it to be removed. I think when pressure first comes upon us, that's often our just default position, isn't it? God, please take this away from me. But when we come to Paul here at the end of Philippians, at this point in his life, we find now that he's been through a lot of different things. He has really suffered in his life. And he has come to the point now, he says, of being content. And literally the word is the word autarkos, and it means self-sufficient. But he's not talking about being self-sufficient as the world understands it. And I'll come back to that in a bit. And so you'll notice he talks about what he's gone through. He summarizes it for us in verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I know uh, how to be content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He deals with extremes. He's known both extremes and everything in between. And now in prison... Looking back through all of that, he says, I've learned the secret of being content. So again, he's thankful for their gifts, but he doesn't need them anymore. All of this takes us back to the first message in this series. I think Romans 5 that we began with is really a foundational text for us in dealing with our stress. I would encourage you to memorize those opening verses that we looked at in Romans chapter 5. Go back there with me if you would, where Paul begins by saying, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, as believers, when we got saved, as they were singing about a bit ago, that we moved into a position of being at peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We're no longer separated from God. We're at peace with God. We have been declared righteous, not guilty. God has covered us in the righteousness, the perfection, the perfected life of His Son, and He's given us a gift of eternal life. Paul says in verse 2 that we now stand by faith in this grace, this wonderful, wonderful river of grace. We stand in it now. We are secure. And so Paul goes on, remember in this text, to say, because of that, we can now glory in our sufferings. We can rejoice in the pressures of life because we know He holds us secure, He has saved us, He's not going to let us go, and He has a process now, and He tells us what the process is, uh, is giving to us. We glory in our sufferings, He says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance Character and character what? Hope. And notice verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's what? Love has been poured out into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he says in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. It's the word thlipsis. It's the same word that he uses in chapter 4, verse 14 of Philippians, where he, he says this. He's still going through sufferings. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, my sufferings. Same word. Paul still has troubles. He still has pressure. But he's been through enough now to see that... Uh, that what he writes about in Romans 5 really has come true for him. The pressure, the stress has produced endurance or perseverance, which has shaped character, and that has flowed out into being one that has hope. And so what we see from Paul is that he has reached the point in his life that no matter what comes up now, he pretty much can move to the position of hope and contentment. Because he really has come to understand this process and to embrace it. He has reached this point of of moving pretty quickly to that area of contentment. Now, no matter what comes up, Paul can rejoice and he can be content. He has learned to see the end of his trials in the beginning of the pressure and to embrace that. And that is the key perspective. It is not resignation. Or some sense of just living with faith. What we're going to see in a moment, it is a matter of trust in a relationship with a person that he's come to know. And in that trust, he can now be content. Perhaps you and I can see this a bit better if we think about the pressure and training people must go through for, you know, very skilled positions. Say a brain surgeon or a neurosurgeon. A very difficult profession, right? Very difficult skill, even to have the, the hands to do it, the natural ability to do it. But just think about this person that, you know, they finish high school, and you have no pressure in high school, and then you, they go away to college. And then there's the pressure of learning in college and finishing at the top of your class because you know you're going to be competing with the very best and brightest in relationship to what you want to do. And then there's the taking of the MCAT, the medical college admission test. And if you pass that, then you apply to get into med school somewhere, hopefully the one of your choice. And you go there, and so then you have more and more of that classroom time to become a medical doctor over four years. And you finally reach that goal, and you move into the area of being a a resident. And you begin after that fellowships for years more of specialization and training and observation. And eventually you may move to begin working on a cadaver or a model beginning to think about doing brain surgery. And then there comes that first time in that operating room where you you use a scaffold to to cut into the the head of someone or a saw to, to saw through their skull to get to their brain. And you have their very life in your hands of being that type of a surgeon. And finally, at that point, At that point in your life, you've really moved into the realm, finally, of being a surgeon. It took a lot of years to get there, 
But it's only when you really come to that point where somebody's life is in your hands, right, you are then qualified to be called a surgeon. I admire people who are able to do that. I'm thankful that when I've had to have surgery, hopefully uh, I've had no brain surgery, in case you're wondering, but I, I have had surgery into to know that this person has been hour upon hour upon hour preparing with so much pressure that I can put my life in this person's hands. They're a surgeon. And you know, I, I'm not a surgeon, but I can imagine that when you get to that point in your profession, that whatever comes at you from that point on, you're prepared for it. Yeah, there are going to be hard cases, unexpected turns, mistakes made, things that crop up in, a, in an operating room that maybe, you know, nobody else, there's no case study on this one. But it comes up in your life and you've got to deal with it because of your confidence then in your training and what you've been through, you are now a surgeon. The pressure may come, but you pretty quickly return to equilibrium. The stress is managed. You're able to do what you're called to do. And so this person now has faith in the process they've been through to get them to this point, And it changes the rest of life in relationship to what they're doing. Now, if you and I could just extrapolate the central point of that illustration and apply it to all of our life, we can perhaps begin to move into the realm of seeing that for you and I, we have been called to be disciples of Jesus. We've been moved into a realm of being a follower, a disciple of Jesus, which is a big word and a great calling. And so life now with him is about him turning us into awesome people prepared for glory. And so in the model we developed over the past few weeks, we have these elements. And they may not come necessarily in this order, but these elements to rely upon as these stressful things arise. And so the pressure comes. We remind ourselves we have peace in our relationship with God. We can rejoice in our trials. We can focus on God's faithfulness and continue to obey Him and trust Him because we have those memorial stones the Israelites had to remind them God had been faithful to take them from Egypt to the Promised Land. And we have the memorial of the Lord's Supper to remind us that God says, I'll be faithful to you and I've written it in the very blood of my Son. We can stay focused on our spiritual routines related to our walk and really all of life. And this order in life, you know, it helps lessen stress. But, but like Daniel, we keep praying. No matter what the pressure is, we seek him in that way. Not to alleviate the stress, but because that is our discipline of relating to the Lord. We rely on authentic, spiritual, biblical friendships with people who will empathize with us, pray with us, and yet be truthful with us. You'll notice at the end of Philippians, Paul is talking about them. They were genuine friends to him. He's writing to them and talking about how they blessed him in life as friends. Then last week we talked about public worship, coming in every week to gain perspective and to be with the Lord who dwells in a particular way, his gathered people. And yes, within biblical guidelines and principles, we can take action to change our situations. If God 
allows us to do that, but he doesn't always allow us to do that. Remember, Pastor Chen was in a communist prison for 18 years. There was nothing he could do to change that. Paul is here in prison. He hopes to be out, but there's nothing he can do in himself to change that. And You and I may go through things in our life where there's nothing we can do to change certain things. But then the last thing I want us to see here, though, is then like Paul, what do we do? We move to the point of remembering that I am a disciple of Jesus who is in training for greatness. That's what I'm in training for. It's far above being a neurosurgeon. And all these things I'm going through now is in preparation of really coming to the point of where I can really say, I'm a disciple. I'm a real disciple of Jesus. I've reached maturity. There's always room to grow, but I've matured as a disciple of Jesus. And not only that, I want you to remember this. You're not only being trained to be one who can say you're a disciple. The Bible says we're being trained to rule over the coming new creation. So our scriptural call to worship this morning was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. What do you really believe about yourself? I hope you'll come to believe what God has said about you. So turn back to that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying, that is, you can depend upon this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. That is, dying to ourselves, trusting Christ, we have life, begins here and is eternal. Now I want you to read the first part of verse 12 out loud with me. Are you there, 2 Timothy 2? Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you see the word reign? That's a a word that reminds us of royalty, right? King, ruling. You remember when God made Adam and Eve, they were made to rule over the creation. And the Bible says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The restoration, and you and I are being called to rule over that. The Bible says you and I, as followers of Jesus, would judge angels. You ever thought about that? Judge angels. I mean, turn to your neighbor right now. I don't often do this. It's kind of weird, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Turn to your neighbor right now. Stick a breath man in if you need to. But turn to your neighbor give you a second there to do that. Get a tic-tac. You ready? You are budding royalty in training. Will you say that to your neighbor? You? You ever thought about yourself in that way? You are budding royalty. You're going to reign with Christ. Judge angels. That's pretty heady, isn't it? That's a little above any profession here on this planet. And Paul has come to the point in his life, he knew that. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verses 6 through 8, in this, this text where he's in prison, he is going to die. 
And he says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. His life is like an offering to, to the Lord. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And so you see, Paul had come to that point where he could quickly assert trust in the fact that he had peace with God, the tribulations were working a process of making him an authentic disciple and one being prepared to rule in glory, and in the middle of all of that truth, then he could claim that, and he can move to contentment of saying, I have learned to be content. Have you made it there yet? Have I made it there yet? Then there's a second thing that quickly I want to share with you about this as we wrap up this series. We can also then experience what God intends through our stress. Yes, He wants us to become authentic disciples, being prepared for ruling the new creation with Him in glory. But there's something else we need to see here. We've been singing this morning about being saved and about that river of grace and that life change, what Jesus has done for us. Paul uses two unique words here related to this situation that he is facing. One, he says he has learned to be content. That's the only place this word is used in the New Testament. And it does literally mean self-sufficient, but not in the way the world thinks about it. He then speaks in verse 12 of chapter 4 about learning the secret. Notice the text says that he says that I have learned the secret of being content, of facing any situation. This is also the only place this phrase is used in the New Testament. It's probably an allusion to the mystery cults around them that boasted of secret knowledge. But Paul draws upon this to say that we as Christians have the ultimate secret the world does not understand. I am self-sufficient because of Christ Jesus, that I really know Him. He abides with me. He abides within me. And so Paul has the ability to be sufficient in any situation because he's truly come to know and to rely upon the living Christ who truly shows up to give him strength in the trials. And so the ultimate thing is that now in his stresses he can be content with the process because as he has gone through these things, he has really come to the point of finding Jesus in a deeper relationship. He was able to look to him and to experience the Lord in the midst of them. And so now look at verse 13. I can do all this through what? A person, him. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the ultimate matter. You and I are being led to a deepen and eternal relationship with the living God. He's been dwelling in relationship in the Trinity for all of eternity. He has created us and redeemed us. He's made us relationally so that we can know Him. And He's in the process of deepening that relationship with us as he transforms us, not to be divine, but certainly the Scripture says that we shall be like him in our character. 
as he has taken up humanity and the divine in the incarnation of his son. That's the real meaning of verse 13. So let me say a couple of things here and then I'll close. A couple of important corrections that will help us. Sometimes in our practices as Christians and as the church, we we can do things that subtly will mess us up and mess people up. Verse 13 is a verse you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's how it's often translated or written. Verse 13, listen, is not a slogan to be etched on Paul's sandals or written in eye black under his eyes to say that through Jesus I can do anything or be enabled to do anything, to be successful, to win the football game. As hesitant as I am to be critical of people utilizing the Bible in daily life, it is dangerous when we use the Bible wrongly. And that is a wrong use of Philippians 4.13. This verse, nor any verse, nor the Bible as a whole, is about self-realization, about self-help for success. Paul is saying in this text that because of Christ, I can endure anything that life throws at me as I live this life of discipleship and as I'm in training for his purposes for which he has made me. It's not about my small plans. And this era of how we use Philippians 13 is rooted, I think, in another era of the 20th century, and that is the way people think about salvation. Perhaps I can get to this most quickly by sharing how I saw it put recently. Someone wrote recently, the Bible knows nothing about a plan of salvation, It tells us about the man of salvation. And you see, I think sometimes we've corrupted the gospel and have corrupted what people think about Christian experience right in the front end of inviting people to be saved. In many instances, and I speak anecdotally, but I think correctly, we reduce salvation down to this plan where I feel something, I hear about the plan, the elements, and then I say a prayer and that seals the deal. Here's the formula, here's the prayer, and you're in. Then Jesus becomes, you know, my fire insurance. He's out to bless me, which means make me successful in American culture, make life go smoother. I can do all things, for he's out to make me successful and fulfilled. But you see, in all of that, if we just move To the wrong side of the equation a little bit, we miss the gospel. The gospel is not about Jesus being added to my life to make me complete, to smooth off the rough edges of life, to enable me to do all that I want to fulfill my goals. If we could just sit in jail for a while, perhaps it might clear this up for us. The gospel is about my coming to realize that I am broken and corrupt due to my sin. The gospel is about realizing there is one who is better and wiser and more powerful than I am who made me, one who has a plan for my life, one who has purchased me, and he calls me to submit my life to him, to quit trying to run life on my own, the way I want it to run. That's called repentance. And then the one who places my trust in him as a person who died for me, who I need, who will live within me, who has a better plan for what he wants to do with my life. I fall at the cross for that, as we were singing this morning. 
And I submit to Him to shape me as He wants, often through difficulty and pain and trial, through things not coming out the way that I wanted them to come out, through the edges getting sharper, not rounder in life. And in the midst of that process, He desires then in His own way, as I trust Him in the process, and I submit to Him to make Himself known to me more fully, if I would just really begin to look for Him. Paul had found Him over and over in that prison. Pastor Chin found him in that filthy refuse of a prison camp. And so he could sing that I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And it turned that cesspool into a rose garden for him in his life. And he was content And when you and I start pursuing Jesus in that way, in our trials and in our stresses, we shall find Him too. And we shall come to the point in our maturity where we quickly move to seeing the hope and to be able to say, I have found myself to be content, whatever the circumstances. Would you stand with me as we come to our point of commitment today? Our hymn of commitment this morning is Jesus is tenderly calling. And he does call us to follow him. If you've not trusted him, we invite you today to fall at the cross and submit your life to him and trust him and meet him as a person who has a plan to transform you into a glorious being as you submit and place yourself in his hand. Maybe today for the first time you need to do that. Maybe you need to follow Jesus in baptism and obey him in that area of your life. Or to become a part of this fellowship as God so leads you, we invite you to come in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you now for this time of commitment. We pray you'd accomplish all that you want in this message and in the previous ones. Lord, I pray for myself humbly before you that through these truths you have taken me into in the Word, that you will transform me to be a better disciple, a better leader. Forgive me, Lord, when I do not trust you enough. Forgive me, Lord, when I do not see the end at the beginning. Forgive me when I get my eyes on the things of this world rather than upon you. Grow me, Lord. No matter what you need to do, Grow me, Lord, to be that budding royalty you intend for me to be, made for your purposes, not mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.